You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And this morning in our study of Matthew, we come to verse 18. We'll read to verse 22. Matthew chapter 21. We read beginning at verse 18. The Bible says, Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Let's go to our Lord together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Each one is sweet to us. Each one is important for us. In this way, you care for us, your sheep. In this way, we are fed. In this way, we are strengthened. In this way, we are prepared and warned, equipped, guarded. You meet our needs through the proclamation of your word. We thank you for all of these things. We acknowledge, Lord, our own inability, both the preacher and the listener today, Lord. We are not able to benefit from this study without you, so we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word and upon the hearing of it. May the Holy Spirit of God take the sword of the Spirit in hand and direct our hearts and minds to the one whom we proclaim this day, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we've just sung, may we behold Him, glory in Him, prize Him, and pursue Him with all of our hearts. And Lord, would You Today, save anyone who doesn't know your Son, and would you, Lord, sustain our faith, and we know you will and do. We, your people, would you sustain our faith as we look to your Son yet again this morning. We ask you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a colt. He is surrounded by a great crowd of people who are singing his praises declaring His kingship, calling out to God for deliverance. The result is that the city of Jerusalem is shaken. This is how Matthew describes it. And then that evening, he retires to Bethany. That's Sunday night. Makes his way back into Jerusalem on Monday. And as we saw in the previous verses, he cleanses the temple. 
zealously, with holy zeal, with divine zeal for the house of God. He disrupts and destroys and drives out the corrupt, irreverent, defiling activities taking place in the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. Both of these actions by Jesus are presented with Scripture. Some of that Scripture coming out of the mouth of Jesus Himself, some of that Scripture coming out of the mouths of people in the crowd, some of that Scripture being presented to us by Matthew as he comments on these events. But all of that Scripture meant to communicate to us that what we are witnessing in these verses is the fulfillment of Scripture. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. These things are taking place just as the Bible foretold that they would. In other words, the eternal decrees of God are taking place in time, in history. All this written down before the foundation of the world in the heart and mind of God, now it's coming to pass in time. And in both of those events, the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, you have the majesty of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus on display. The majesty of His person displayed in the fact that He's declared to be king by the crowds as He makes His way into Jerusalem. He prepares for His own presentation to Israel. And the, the omniscience on display in that planning process speaks of the greatness of His person. And yet He rides in not with an army and not on a general's steed, but He rides in on a colt which communicates the peacefulness of His mission. He is there not as a conquering general. He is there as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He's there to save us, deliver us by His own life. And even as He cleanses the temple, there is the display both of His majesty, divine jealousy, but also His mercy because immediately after driving out the corrupt business practices, He meets with blind people and lame people and there He heals them. But when we looked at that cleansing of the temple, there's something else that is especially sobering. He is communicating judgment, right? The divine jealousy, holy jealousy, but to what end? On behalf of the glory and, and name of God, this speaks of judgment. As he disrupts, as he overturns tables, as he drives them out, it's a picture of judgment, judgment on apostasy, judgment on stubborn unbelief, judgment on irreverence, and it is symbolic. I mean, he does this in, in a way that's purposeful. Remember, he goes in Sunday evening, he looks around what's taking place at the temple. He returns on Monday. So this is not some, some out-of-control response on the part of Jesus. This is calculated. It communicates something. A warning, a preview concerning a national judgment that the Mosaic Covenant had warned about and promised. And that same judgment is underscored in what Matthew presents immediately following the cleansing of the temple. That same judgment is on display in our verses this morning, verses 18 through 22. And I'll explain why I say that in just a moment. Now, one thing I want you to know as you look at these verses today is that what Matthew presents to us here is not presented in chronological order. 
Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus cursed the fig tree Monday morning, in the morning prior to the cleansing of the temple. Then He cleanses the temple, and it's on the next day, on Tuesday, when the disciples recognize that the tree has withered to its roots, and then Jesus gives this teaching about faith. So the cleansing of the temple is sandwiched between these two interactions, we could say, I guess, between Jesus and the fig tree. So Jesus curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, returns the next day. The disciples see the fig tree withered up, and there He gives these lessons about faith. You can read about this in Mark 11, 11 through 25. The chronology is, is set before us in those verses. Why? Why does Matthew present this condensed, combined, together, what happens on Monday and Tuesday, following His account of Christ cleansing the temple. Why does He take something that sandwiched that cleansing and then present it following the cleansing of the temple in one scene? I think the reason why He does it, besides just His own purposes, in some places He's more brief than other accounts. In some places He expands information. It's the Spirit of God authoring every bit of it, as you know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a combined witness to who Jesus is and what He did. So it could just be explained that way. But I think in addition, it's he understands it is proper to do this because these two days actually are connected to what stands in the middle of them. These two interactions with the fig tree are connected in some way to what he did when he cleansed the temple. And so he just combines them and presents them after the cleansing of the temple. What is on display in all of this is judgment. Judgment upon a nation characterized by hypocrisy and unbelief. What is being pictured through the cleansing of the temple, what we see pictured in our verses this morning, is a judgment for unbelief that will result in a turning away from the nation of Israel as God's primary means for the declaration of the gospel and the display of His glory to what will follow the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension gift of Jesus, of the Spirit of God, and that is now God's primary means for the declaration of the gospel and the display of His glory in the world is not the nation Israel, but the church made up of Jew and Gentile with no dividing wall. Before Christ came to the earth, God puts Himself on display through a nation, the nation Israel, now following the resurrection and ascension of His Son. On the day of Pentecost, God puts Himself on display and spreads the good news of His saving willingness throughout the earth by means of the church. Judgment will result in mercy. Now, that rejection of Israel is not permanent. God made national promises. God made unconditional promises regarding the nation Israel, and they will all be fulfilled down to the last detail. And it's going to be fulfilled in an ethnic Israel. The church is not Israel. It's going to be fulfilled in an ethnic Israel made up of saved Jews, a remnant that will trust in Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. 
a great outpouring of salvation will take place at the end of the age. It's going to coincide with the return of Jesus to the earth. And in that day, we will see what amounts to a national spiritual resurrection. Christ will usher in a kingdom that will still include nations. And in that kingdom, Israel will shine and all the promises made concerning Israel will be fulfilled. Romans 11.25 gives us this information. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Let me just comment on that. Before the coming of Christ to the earth, most people who had genuine faith in Yahweh were Israelites. Gentiles were saved, but in much smaller numbers than Jews. Since the resurrection and ascension of Christ, day of Pentecost, the birthing of the church, now we know it's true to say the vast majority of believers are Gentiles. God is still saving Jews, but in much smaller numbers. Well, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when God's purpose for this age we're living in has reached its conclusion, Jesus will return to the earth. This actually begins to take place during the tribulation period. I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the Lord's church, then you usher in seven years of tribulation that will turn the focus again on the nation of Israel and it will culminate in the return of Christ to the earth and there will be a great day of salvation. Romans eleven twenty five. lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. None of this is salvation plan B. It's not like, well, Israel failed, therefore I've got to go in another direction. No, this is all a part of God, God's saving plan from the foundation of the earth. And yet it doesn't lessen the seriousness of Israel's unbelief. This is something we see again and again in Scripture. God is truly sovereign, completely sovereign over everything, yet man is truly responsible for his sin. What God has ordained comes to pass, but man is responsible in a way that should sober us. So what we're seeing on display in the cleansing of the temple, which is sort of a preview of what is coming, what you see in the cursing of the fig tree, which is sort of a preview of what is coming, it speaks of something sobering. Just one example of this, of this interaction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Think about Judas. Was Judas ordained to be what he was, the betrayer? Yes. Was it still sobering with respect to Judas himself? Luke twenty-two twenty-two, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined... But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There it is. What happens was determined, predetermined. But woe to the one who betrays me. So in the same kind of way, what has happened with the nation Israel has meant riches for the world. This is not salvation plan B. Yet Israel's apostasy and unbelief 
And the judgment of God upon that apostasy and unbelief is, is real and it's serious. We'll be reminded of that again today. We're going to look at these verses under two main headings. Number one, a curious response to a fruitless tree. A curious response to a fruitless tree. Number two, a curious response to amazed disciples. A curious response to amazed disciples. That was, first of all, a curious response to a fruitless tree. Look at verse 18. Now, in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a lone fig tree by the road. By the way, this is one of the reasons why this would have been memorable for the disciples. It's an object lesson for the disciples. There's this, this one tree, a lone tree, beside the road, which means focus is there. The lesson will be seen. The lesson will be acknowledged. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Let's stop there. It's a strange scene, isn't it? Strange for a couple of reasons. This is the only miracle we have in Scripture where Jesus did something that directly was destructive. This is it. A miracle that was destructive in nature. Now you do have that time when He cast out demons, entered the herd of swine, ran off the cliff, destroyed the, the herd, but that was sort of indirect. He didn't do what He did to destroy the pigs. He did what He did to deliver the men. And the result was destructive. But this is directly destructive. He curses this fig tree. The result is it dies and withers. But something else that makes this a bit strange is why Jesus would be disappointed in a fig tree that had no fruit on it when it wasn't the season for figs. Now you don't get this from Matthew's account, but Mark tells us this. Mark 11 verse 13, the Bible says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, next statement, for it was not the season for figs. So why would Jesus be disappointed or surprised when it wasn't even fig season? That he would find a tree with no figs on it. Well, let's, let's trace this scene together and figure it out. First of all, Jesus, his disciples, on their way back into Jerusalem from Bethany, Monday morning, Jesus is hungry. The Bible tells us this. In the morning when He returned to the city, He became hungry. Never forget the humanity of Jesus is real. He knew weariness. He knew hunger. He knew all the physical realities that human beings know, but He knew all these things without sin. Our natural drives have been affected by sin. In all the realms where we have very natural drives that are not sinful in and of themselves, we still have to battle indwelling sin with respect to those drives. Jesus did not know that because there was no sin in Him. And He was constantly, perfectly submitted to the Holy Spirit's leadership. And so in that way too, He is different from us. But He was hungry. And knowing that hunger sees a tree in the distance, fig tree, in leaf. 
Now, this is where knowledge of that region helps us. The fig trees would begin to sport their leaves in March and April. As the leaves are coming onto the trees, so are the early figs. Now, those figs were the result of the previous year's sprouts on the tree. Not yet ripened, not gathered until June. That's what Mark means when he says it was not the season for figs. It's not the season for gathering them. They're not yet ripened. But you still have these, these early figs that would show up when the trees began to come into leaf. William Hendrickson comments, in the region referred to here in Mark, he's coming on the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account, he says the early or smaller figs growing from the sprouts of the previous year begin to appear at the end of March and are ripe in May or June. The later and much larger figs that develop on the new or spring shoots are gathered from August to October. It's important to point out that the earlier figs with which we are here concerned begin to appear simultaneously with the leaves. Sometimes, in fact, they even precede the leaves. So it's not the time for gathering figs, but these early figs are still edible. They're not ripe, but they're still edible. And so Jesus goes to a tree that's in leaf and expects to find figs on this tree. You would expect to find figs on it, and yet the tree is barren. So here's the picture. The tree itself represents something promising. The leaves represent something promising for a hungry soul. But the tree is fruitless, fruitless. And the result is disappointment. So what does Jesus do? He curses that fig tree in the hearing of His disciples. No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And the disciples hear that. How do we understand what Jesus did? Is He angry because He's hungry and there are no... There's no fruit on the tree, and so in sort of a temper tantrum on the part of the Son of God, He curses it? Of course not. You know better than that. He is the sinless Son of God, the perfect man. That's not what happens. No, He is using the tree to teach. Once again, He's teaching His disciples. A great opportunity for an object lesson. What is that fruitless tree like? That fruitless tree is like Israel. Remember, He's headed to the temple. There He's going to cleanse the temple. This precedes that. This will be in the disciples' mind, at least at some level, as then they witness what He does at the temple. Like a people who could have been expected to have fruit. Like a people who from a distance seem to be busy in all sorts of religious activity. There seems to be something there of legitimate, real religion. But upon closer inspection, what you have is fruitless hypocritical, irreverent, not pleasing to God. God has been gracious to Israel. God has given truth to Israel. God has now come in the person of His Son to Israel. God has given promises to Israel to prepare them for His arrival. And yet for all of those graces and all of that promise, They are largely fruitless. Of course, there was a remnant of belief in the nation Israel, but looking at the nation as a whole, it was unfaithful. So the fig tree is like Israel. 
spiritually barren, spiritually disappointing, fruitless. And the result of their disobedience and rebellion against God in God's perfect, ti- perfect timing, he's been very patient, but in his perfect timing, in accordance with what he says in the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 28, and what he says is going to happen, Deuteronomy 30, judgment is on its way. So Christ takes the occasion of the fruitless tree to illustrate a lesson about Israel's spiritual condition. The disciples might not have picked up on that immediately, but after witnessing what they do in the temple, after the conversation we're about to read in a moment, after this, and then especially moving beyond it into the future, they should be able to recall these things and make the connection of what Christ was teaching in what they were witnessing. And one of the reasons why they should be able to do this is because this lesson is not foreign to what was already given in the Word of God. We already have Old Testament teaching where Israel's sin is compared to a fruitless fig tree and judgment is warned about. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, Verse 22, the Bible says this, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. When I first brought you out of Egypt, I wasn't talking about all these sacrifices. I was talking about your heart condition, that you would incline your heart to me, that you would listen to me, that you would obey my voice. But you've not obeyed my voice. You've walked in your own counsels, in the stubbornness of your own evil hearts. You've gone backward not forward. And then when you keep reading that section down to chapter 8, verse 12, the Lord says this, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. And in that case, he's talking about Babylonian captivity. Were they ashamed? Did they blush? Think about this, dear ones. We talked about this last week. Jesus, when He cleansed the temple, it was the second time. He does it at the beginning of His ministry. He does it in the final week of His life. What does that tell you? It tells you that after He did it the first time, what did they do? They went right back to the same practices. There is nothing learned. There's there's no conviction. There's no turning from sin. It's the same irreverence, it's the same apostasy, it's the same outrageous behavior in the very temple precincts going on that has to be dealt with all over again because they are stubborn in their sin. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Next verse, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. What I gave them has passed away from them. I am looking at a fruitless 
vine. I am looking at a fruitless tree. So when the disciples reflect on this curse upon the fig tree, followed by the cleansing of the temple, followed by the withering of of the tree down to its roots, and then the lesson on faith, in time at least, they'll be able to connect this. There's an Old Testament precedent for this. And in addition, there's Christ's earlier teaching. He has already given them a parable that talks about fruitlessness that has to do with a fig tree. Luke 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Interesting, he says three years, isn't it? I mean, how, Lord, how long is our Lord's earthly ministry? Three years. What, what, what's he doing? Addressing the nation Israel. For three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What an interesting parable in light of what happens with our Lord and Savior. As I said, three years of earthly ministry, He dies for our sins. He's raised from the dead. Then comes the day of Pentecost and Peter, in his preaching, offers Israel their Messiah, declares to them that they must turn to Him. And if they would, there'd be refreshment from heaven. And while the Lord saves thousands of Jews, the great majority of Israel goes on in her unbelief. And eventually this judgment is made unmistakable and undeniable in the destruction of the temple in the year A.D. 70. And all the sacrificial system ceases. So a curious response to a fruitless tree. The second thing I want you to see is a curious response to amazed disciples. Look at verse 20. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither all at once? I mean, even though we know now from Mark that the withering was recognized on the second day, It died when Christ pronounced the curse. This immediate, miraculous killing of this fig tree, this judgment on the fig tree. How did it happen all at once? Verse 21, And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you should say, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, It will happen. He may have been standing on the Mount of Olives when he said this. If this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Verse 22, and all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Again, connecting this with what happened at the temple 
If the temple is the nerve center of Jewish religion at the time, and it is, if worship expresses the heart condition of the nation of Israel, and it did, and Christ is angry with what He sees there and disrupts it and drives out what is happening there in the outer court, then what we have is a temple activity with a display of religion that appeared impressive on the outside but full of death on the inside, like a tree with promising leaves but devoid of anything that could really help somebody. So was the religion of Israel. And if we ask what's wrong with the nation, what's wrong at the temple, what should I learn from the cursing of the fig tree? Jesus answers, it's about faith. What's wrong with Israel is she is unbelieving. This is what marks empty religion from true religion. This is the difference between a form of godliness that has no power in it and genuine, true religion, undefiled religion that is pleasing on the side of God. That's the product of God's own activity. He produces it by His saving power. One knows no genuine faith. The other knows genuine faith. One is activity in the realm of blinded eyes, spiritual darkness. The other is activity in the realm of light and life. What's wrong with Israel is that she doesn't have genuine faith. Again, speaking of the nation as a whole, not each and every individual Israelite. But there's this absence of genuine faith. It seems curious, doesn't it, that he would curse this fig tree. The disciples recognize it. They comment on it. And his next series of lessons has to do with faith. But the connecting element is just that the kind of religion that deserves to be damned, the kind of false worshipers who will meet with the wrath of God are unbelieving worshipers, and it's an unbelieving kind of religious activity. In Mark's account, we learn that Jesus began with an exhortation to faith. He, he begins with a command regarding faith. Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. That's where the talk began. Have faith in God. Because this is where what pleases God will always reside, where there's faith. Said another way, every act of sin you and I have ever committed is the result of unbelief. Unbelief is in every sin that man commits. If you are talking about an evil people, you're talking about an unbelieving people. If you talk about a sinning people, you're talking about an unbelieving people. John Piper said this, and it's, it's a great saying, sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. That's true. But we can also say this, sin is what we do when we don't believe God. And your heart is not satisfied with God if you don't believe Him. So you're believing sin's promise of pleasure instead of God's promise that at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? If so, you obey Him. If you believe Him, you obey Him because you're looking for your pleasure in God, not in the passing pleasures of sin. So sin is what we do when we don't believe God. If you talk about a rebellious people, you're talking about an unbelieving people. If you talk about superficial, hypocritical worship, you're talking about an unbelieving kind of worship. 
talk about a people headed for judgment, you're talking about an unbelieving people. And if you talk about what's wrong when Jesus comes to the earth, Israel's response to her Messiah, that's it, isn't it? They don't really believe He is who He claims to be and what all of His works clearly say He is. They refuse to believe. It is an evil, stubborn unbelief that characterizes the nation, which is why Jesus gives these lessons about faith in connection with the tree and in connection with the cleansing of the temple. The problem is unbelief. I want to show you something real quickly. If you would look at Hebrews chapter 3, I want you to see this with your eyes. Hebrews chapter 3. I want you to see how serious unbelief is. By the way, this is why you have the warnings passages throughout the book of Hebrews warning God's people against unbelief. You find this often in shepherding people, people who you believe, obviously you're hopeful for them, you believe they're genuine believers, but they're struggling down to the level of, do I really believe? And one of the elements that ought to be included in how we try to help them is to warn them. Not to go on in unbelief, but to depart from unbelief. Here's why. Look at Hebrews 3, look at verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Now, here's what I want you to notice looking at those verses. If you have a, a pen or pencil or a highlighter, you may want to see this connection visually. Notice the way sin is described from verse 7 down to verse 15. Do not harden your hearts, verse 8, as in the rebellion, verse 8. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, verse 9. They always go astray in their heart, verse 10. Have not known my ways, verse 10. Fall away from the living God, verse 12. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, verse 13. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, verse 15. So notice what characterizes Israel in that passage. Hard hearts, rebellion, putting God to the test, going astray in your heart, not knowing God's ways, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is at the root of all of those manifestations of sin? What is at the root is in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, what? 
unbelieving heart. You see, there it is. The problem is unbelief, and it's evil. It's evil. Don't take you doubting God as something benign. It is not benign. It is serious. It is sobering. It ought to set off an alarm for you, and it must be something you turn from. Let me know the truth. No matter what I feel like, I've got to put away my feelings. What is true? Now I'm going to pursue it with all my heart. I turn from unbelief. I turn from an evil, unbelieving heart to trust in what God has declared in His Word and in His Son. So what marks genuine believers, look back at Matthew 21, what marks genuine believers then is what? Faith. Faith. What is wrong in Israel? Unbelief. What is inviting the judgment of God upon Israel? Unbelief. What should, must characterize Christ's genuine disciples? Faith. Faith. Which is why Jesus gives us these lessons about faith. What characterizes genuine faith? Well, first of all, it's marked by assurance. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Interesting, isn't it, that the illustration Jesus chooses to teach His disciples about faith involves a human impossibility? Is it possible to take a mountain and cast it into the sea? Not from a human point of view. But let me ask you, do you believe God could do it? Do you believe that God can take up the Mount of Olives and cast it into the sea? That kind of assurance marks genuine faith, an understanding that God is really there. He is. An understanding that He is really the one whom He's declared Himself to be. That includes omnipotent. Nothing He can't do. Nothing beyond His ability. All powerful. So that if such a request were to be the will of God, and a person spoke what they knew to be the will of God, the person would receive from God what they requested. Even though it's impossible from a human point of view, if what I'm asking for I know to be the will of God, it indeed is the will of God, He will grant it in response to believing prayer. Do you believe that's true about your God? Now, before you answer too quickly, I want to ask you, are you ever afraid about your finances? Has God declared He'll take care of you? What's the answer, church? Where? Matthew 5, right? It's one place. Don't worry. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Don't you know God loves you more than them? Does He take care of that? Will He not much more take care of you? Do you have the Word of God on this? What's the answer? But you never doubt, right? You know your God is all-powerful. You know who He claims to be and is. And yet we act as if He isn't who He declares Himself to be, and He doesn't do what He declares Himself to do. I mean, you have Him on record. This is specific. This is what He says He'll do. Do you believe Him? And does that show up in your prayer life? Does it show up as a result in your prayer life? You see... Aren't you grateful that though God has chosen to bring you into union with His Son through faith, 
You're not saved by your faith. You're saved by Christ. It's Christ saving you through faith because don't you recognize that your faith is not perfect? You know things you struggle to believe, but you go on believing them. Why? Because what God has done in you is greater than you and not ultimately explained by you. But this still is there in the hearts and lives of people who are redeemed. There is this this knowledge, this belief, even though we struggle, that our God is exactly who He's declared Himself to be. Therefore, it's marked by assurance, by assurance, which is why there is this reference to doubt and to believing and to speaking and all of this relationship to receiving Because what our God is driving home for us is this. This is what honors me when you believe me. Ask me without doubting. And I'm going to affirm that. I'm going to accentuate that. And I'm going to increase that kind of attitude in you. Because that's what honors me when you believe me. And this is what distinguishes genuine believers from apostate Israel. Genuine believers believe Him. What a great picture of us is Peter in a boat in the midst of a storm. He sees Jesus walking on the water. Is it humanly possible for Peter to walk on water? No. But he believes that if the Lord commands him to come, he'll be able to walk on that water. Command me to come to you. Jesus does. Peter begins to walk. What happens? He sees what's going on around him. And he begins to sink. His faith is real, but it's not perfect. And what does our Lord do? Now you're drowning, buddy. Sorry. There you go. I'm going to leave you right there. Is that what he does? Save me, he cries out. And what does Jesus do? Takes him out of that water. And there they are together. Peter is saved. That's our life, isn't it? God has granted us faith to believe, to know, to be assured that He is who He's declared Himself to be. That includes everything that's humanly impossible. We truly believe this. And at times we step out onto that ground that now we have the eyes to see, and yet even there we find ourselves stumbling and and afraid. And yet what does our Lord do? He doesn't let us drown. He doesn't let us sink forever. He goes on developing us, training us, teaching us, rescuing us. But nonetheless, we can say we believe. We truly do believe. What marks genuine faith, it's assurance that God is exactly who He's declared Himself to be. Now, we know false teachers have taken this text and others like it and have twisted it and distorted it and made it something that God never intended for it, for it to be. This idea that you can just ask for anything you want, and if you believe hard enough, you're going to get it. The idea that you have some sort of power in your words, that if you keep declaring something, eventually it will manifest. This is all pagan mysticism. It is demonic doctrine. It is damnable. And the only way you could ever believe that is to take these passages in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Because if you hear what our Lord is saying in the context of everything else He's revealed, you'll quickly recognize that what He's talking about is believing Him for something that He's given you leave to believe Him for. Something He's revealed that you should believe Him for. For example, 
We learn in Scripture that faithful prayer is submissive prayer. 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So prayer is submissive. Prayer is, it belongs to an obedient life. 1 John 3.21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. This is the person who receives from prayer, the person who is asking for what would please God because their whole life is oriented toward pleasing God submissive to His will as revealed in Scripture, keeping His commandments so that now they see what He's given them leave to ask for. They ask in accordance with what He's revealed and with a life ready to obey what He's revealed. This is what characterizes genuine believers. Faithful prayer is informed prayer. John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask, very important addition, in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And you know this, church. The concept of name in Scripture is not just a title. It's not attached the name of Jesus to it. Rather, it means in accordance with His character, in accordance with His person, in accordance with His will, as it said in 1 John 5. If we ask anything in accordance with Jesus, then we know we have it. So effective prayer, powerful prayer, the kind of prayer God works through, is believing prayer. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God, which means we ask for, in faith for what God has revealed. We don't make up what we're asking for. We listen to Him. Then we ask in accordance with what pleases Him. And, and how do we hear Him? The Scriptures. The Scriptures. What has God told us? He is pleased to grant us. So let me just ask you as we move toward finishing. Do you have faith? What is the message here? That Jesus is connecting with the cleansing of the temple through the cursing of this fig tree. What is wrong with Israel? Why is it headed toward judgment? The answer, unbelief. What characterizes genuine believers? Faith. So do you have faith? And is your faith on display in your prayer life? Does your prayer life reveal a believer's understanding of who you are, who God is, and what you're aiming at? And that is what would most please Him. Now, with that in mind, let me just finish with this. What can you know you can ask God for and it be answered? Today, when we leave this place, I pray you will think about your faith and as a result, think about your prayer life. Be assured that God is exactly who He's claimed to be and will do exactly what He said He will do. Even if it meant a mountain going into the sea, if it's His will, He can do it in an instant. So what are you asking Him for with that in mind? Let me give you seven things you can know you can ask for. And we'll finish with this. First of all, we heard it read in Scripture reading this morning, you can ask God for wisdom. Anybody here need wisdom? 
James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. My goodness, if you need wisdom, why have you not been praying? Because God promises to give it to you. If you know His Son, if you're a genuine believer, you can ask for wisdom. Number two, I can ask for grace to help in my time of need. Do you need grace? Do you find yourself in a time of need and do you need the grace of God? Do you know you can ask for that? Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, this is timely help from the throne of God. There you are in your time of need. Do you need grace? Do you need mercy? He says, ask for it and God will give it. Third, I can ask for my daily bread. This is heard in the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Anybody worried about your finances? Anybody worried about ends being met? Now, there's a whole process to be talked about, about examining whether you're doing things the right way and all the rest. But you can know this, nobody in this room has conducted themselves financially perfectly. No one. Yet God is pleased to take care of us anyway. So He loves us in His Son. And whatever your need is, are you asking Him to meet it? Or are you just worrying about it? And by the way, quick side note, worrying is not praying. Worrying is not praying. So are you asking God to meet the need? You can ask Him for your daily bread. Fourth, I can ask for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dear church, do you look forward to Jesus coming again? And do you long for that in a way that it shows up in your prayer life? Are you content and comfortable in a world that hates God? Or do you long for the day when righteousness will reign from shore to shore all over this globe and in everyone who's a part of that kingdom. It should show up in your prayer line. Fifth, I can ask for His Word to go forth with success. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may, spread, may, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. Not all have faith. Oh Lord, would you take your Word from this congregation, from this, and in your church, of course, all over the globe. But thinking about this church, Lord, would you take your word from the mouths of these people and cause it to speed abroad and to, to meet with believers because of your saving mercies and work. Oh, Lord, would you save souls and would you increase your church for the glory of your great name. We can pray for those things, knowing that God is pleased for his word to go forth with success. Sixth, I can ask God, and this is in accordance with that, I can ask God to save sinners for His glory. 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul suffered knowing God would save. 
So we can pray knowing God will save. Who comes to your mind when I say, oh, how you long for someone to be saved? Who comes to your mind? Now, are you praying for their conversion? Are you praying for their regeneration? Are you praying for the new birth? Are you asking the only one who can save that person to save that person? Are you willing to be a part of the solution? Are you willing to have that difficult conversation? Are you willing to be honest about what you believe their spiritual condition is? Are you going to play it safe and just make sure they like you until they fall into the abyss? Or are you praying for them to be saved and will you have a conversation with the gospel? They're not going to be saved by your wisdom. They're not going to be saved by your personal influence. They're not going to be saved by guilting them. They're going to be saved with the gospel in your mouth or someone else's mouth. Would you ask God, if you're not the person, ask God to send someone to them who will be his instrument to see that person come to faith in his son. And then will you take all those desires and all those longings and submit them to the sovereignty of God? Yet, Lord, you know what's best. You are perfectly wise. If you don't save them, there's a perfectly good and wise reason for that. But I ask you, I ask you to have mercy upon their soul. I can ask God to save sinners for His glory. Finally, I can ask God to teach me to love, to increase my faith, to strengthen me to do His will, and all sorts of other requests that we know fit with what He's revealed in Scripture. Does He want me to reflect the love of Christ? I know He does. So Lord, teach me to love. Does He want me to walk in faith? I know He does. So Lord, increase my faith. Does He want me to do His will? I know He does. So Lord, strengthen me to do Your will. Look into the Word of God. Be informed by what would please Your Father. And then with full assurance, not with doubting, but with believing, ask Him to do what you know He's pleased to do. What is wrong with Israel? Unbelief. What is coming as a result? Judgment. What is the answer for Christ's disciples? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what we learn from our Savior, from His words and from His actions on this earth. And Lord, would you drive this lesson home to our hearts this morning, that we would be a people who believe you, you've done that in us, but would not take unbelief to be something that's not dangerous. That we would recognize that there's a hardness of heart that develops where we stop believing. There's an outbreak of all kinds of sin and destruction. And every single time, what resides there is an evil, unbelieving heart. So strengthen us, Lord, to Go on believing you. We know you will. This is what you sustain in your people. But we ask for it, that you would increase our faith and sustain us in believing, and in that way be glorified in our lives. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.